this week on the It's a Monkey podcast? I don't think it's limited to that. I'm able to do everything I need to do, even though I'm sometimes at home, sometimes I'm traveling, working, sometimes I'm here in the office. I think we have to kind of step farther back and say, what type of person would it take maybe to do or to have a remote job? And that's someone who can be pretty disciplined about how they want their day to work and to look like. I talk a lot about it in the article, but certainly it's in the remote book a lot. You know, if you're not disciplined, you could end up like either not working at all and being distracted or working way too much and burning out. Good morning, good evening, hello, wherever you are in the world. It is Friday, the 11th of August, 2017, here in Sydney, Australia. Yet another stunning winter's day. I know I keep saying that, getting a bit of a a cliche, but uh, there's a few things in life you never get bored of. One of them is having a short commute. Apparently, research shows that people never get used to a long commute. And I'm pretty sure, I don't know about the research about this, but I'm pretty sure people never get bored of good weather and perhaps even never get used to bad weather. But I don't know, that hasn't been researched or maybe that's just me. But thank you for joining us on the podcast. We are episode number 102. Now, if you haven't listened to the most recent podcasts, episode 100 with Kevin Kelly, fantastic episode, our special episode 100, and even episode uh, 101, we had a terrific chat with Melanie Swan about the blockchain, which was really, really fascinating. So go back and uh, listen to that. But today, episode 102 is uh, um, another first for us. My co-host and colleague, Kate Frappel, um, actually does her first feature interview today, which is very exciting. And I can see she's, uh, Kate's a very humble and understated person, as uh, if you're a regular listener to the show, you probably uh, will attest to. And it's a great interview. Kate chats with Rachel um, Baskerville, who's the People Operations Associate at Customer IO. Now, Rachel wrote an article about remote work and pretty much based upon the book written by the Basecamp guys, David Hanemeyer Hansen and Jason Fry. Now, of course, David Hanemeyer Hansen, uh, we spoke to on a, on a previous podcast, super smart guy, one of the founders of uh, Basecamp. Camp. And her article was uh, about this book um, and and her thoughts and their experience about remote work. And Kate and Rachel chat about remote work and remote work's really becoming a thing. I mean, it's been a thing for a little while on and off, but it's really coming into its own because of um, more ubiquitous bandwidth as well as um, the right tools and even things like a shortage of talent right? Uh, you have just people just looking for team members everywhere. But we'll have a little bit more of a chat about that later on in the show. As always, you can email us at podcast at itsamonkey.com. You can tweet us. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. Kate, I've been starting to use Instagram a little bit more, um, mainly because our new product, Manage Social, has quite a lot of Instagram functionality. So I want to get my head a little bit around more of the platform. So um, if, if you're listening and you're an Instagram person, follow me, K-E underscore G-A. Um, and I've been trying to put more bits and pieces on Instagram. I even put my, my first video on Instagram yesterday. I don't know if you saw that one. I did. I did. I've noticed you've been posting nearly every day. Yeah, sometimes even a couple of days. What did you think of my video that I put on? I, I sort of The one on the escalator. Few... Yeah. Yeah, it was good. It was very creative, black and white. Yeah, I try I try to I try to sort of challenge myself to 
not just take a photo and send it, but to, you know, filter it, put an interesting caption, sort of use it as an opportunity to, to try be creative. But I'm trying to enjoy Instagram more and as much as I like Twitter. And of course, what really gets you into the platforms is the dopamine hits when people start following you, right? That's how I first got into <laughs> Twitter. You know, I remember the first, one of the first people that followed me back was Jason Calacanis, who was sort of internet famous. And I was like, whoa, this is, you know, it's hard to imagine now, you know, we live in a world now of, uh, where, where sometimes, you know, well-known people follow you back or tweet you back. But in those days, it was just, it was so unusual for someone that was even internet famous to follow you back that you're like, whoa, I could get used to this you know so as i've been posting more on instagram a few people have been starting to follow me um, and like oh okay i remember this feeling yep this feels good and it's like you know you feel like the a 12 year old again you know that's happy that people have come to your birthday party and that's the good old dopamine for you of notifications and likes and all of that definitely although sometimes i get to a stage now where if i see somebody following me that's a little bit more high profile i'm like oh was it really them was it a bot? <laughs> well, I tweeted uh, Tony Robbins when he first joined Twitter. And I, I don't know, I tweeted something like, oh, welcome, Tony. It's great to have you here. And he replied back. And I said, oh, I wonder if that's really Tony or his assistant. I tweeted back again. And he tweeted back and said, it's really me, Kevin. So who knows? Could be his assistant saying it's really me. But um, no, I think, I think a lot of high-profile people do actually enjoy the fact that they've got uh, this little world that they can have a direct channel with. I mean, you know, obviously people like Gary Vee who, who pushes out a ton of content. I mean, there's no ways that he's producing all that content and sending it out and editing everything. There's just no ways he's got a team that does it. He has um, but like every a, now, a person that shadows him. Does he? Yeah, full-time cameraman. He's in all the videos wow. and he does all the Snapchat stories and yeah, it's like a huh. duo. Is Snapchat still a thing? Yeah, it's still going. Um, yeah. It's just, uh, it feels like it could be winding down. Instagram stories are doing a lot better. But at the same time, like, there's a few new kind of interesting ways Snapchat have brought in new features, which are, you know, like they've got a, like a map setting. So now you don't have to only see where, what your friends are doing. You can actually uh, see, like, I can tap into a location. Like, you could say the Harbour Bridge and then see anyone who snapped at the Harbour Bridge. And so yeah. it's like it's some cool location services and stuff like that. But again, I don't know if it's going to pull it out of the rubble. Oh, man, their share price, hard. I mean, it's, it's, I, mean I think they peaked at about $27, and it's $13.77. Ouch. Mm. Um, but, I think I read recently yeah. they've got a new a report coming out next week on their earnings. Right, earnings call. Yeah, it will. Yeah, still, still very early days for them. I mean, you got to remember that um, you know Google and Facebook they all took a little bit of time to find their their revenue points. The difference with Snap though is they really exposed to the Instagram competition. Um, Instagram have delivered so well on products that it's that you know they they really deserve kudos for how well they've executed. Yeah. Um, on product they've it's 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 really an incredibly polished product they've thought about a lot of things and it's just it's tight it's very very tight definitely and one of the biggest features on snapchat well that differentiated it for me anyway was the filters that went over the face and the, you know the dog ears and all the different filters that come with snapchat 
And uh, I got a notification on Instagram last week, I believe, and they've introduced the same thing. So yeah. now Instagram have that. They have exactly the same type of filters and stickers and stuff that made Snapchat different. So now, not too sure. Yeah, it's tough out there. There's only so much mind space and it's only so many times in the day that you can, um, you, you know, there's limited human bandwidth. I remember I was at a concert a couple of years ago, just quite a while back already now, two, three years, and I remember watching this woman, I don't know, she must have been late teens or something, and I remember watching her cycle through every social media platform and take photos. <laughs> she took some photos and added it to Facebook, and she took some photos and added it to Instagram, and she took some photos and she added it to Twitter, and she literally went through all of them. But, you know, there's there's a limit, so, um, you know, and who's going to win that mind share in the end, and um, people... I think, you know, teenagers maybe it might be a unique demographic where they like to be separate because that's all what being a teenager is about. But, you know, everyone else, I don't know, I think if we could all use one product that includes email, social, you know, work chats, I, I think we'd actually go for it, right? Potentially, yeah. I mean, I do feel like a lot of people, um, millennials, teenagers, like Snapchat's quite sticky with them. Like that's how they communicate yeah. now. And to get them to jump onto a Facebook product would probably be a bit of a challenge. Yeah, and of course teenagers do land up growing up. So um, they don't stay teenagers forever. So that's where Snap might sort of win in the end. But um, yeah, interesting interesting times. I haven't opened Snapchat for a while. The only person, I used to follow some venture capitalists on Snapchat. Uh, Mark Susto is a very well-known LA venture capitalist and he used to do these great snap storms where he would have a topic like, um, I don't know, raising funds in a difficult market and he would like give these incredible tips like just sort of you know, 10, five second clips one after another. And they were just, it was an incredible learning platform, actually. I mean, I almost think back to my uni days, if if the lecturer every day would, would do these snap storms um, while you're eating your breakfast and you'd watch something, it's, it's um, you know, I don't know, maybe there's a business idea in that, Kate. It's, 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 it's a great way. <laughs> it's a great, great way to learn. Anyway, we, we digress. Let's get straight into the news. Lots of interesting things happening. Some uh, Speaking of millennials and teenagers, I see there's a teenage girl that's uh, done some remarkable development. Tell us what uh, she's managed to pull off. Yes, yeah, so there's a 16-year-old uh, from Mumbai in India, and she's created a 3D printed lens together with her brother and a classmate, um, which is helping diagnose diabetic retinopathy. Which is interesting because they've um, they've trained an AI system uh, with thirty four thousand retinal scans from the National Institute of Health database, and basically taught their app to recognize patterns in the pictures and therefore diagnose patients in um, in a local hospital by taking pictures of their eye. Right. So it's a contact lens you wear, and it's always monitoring your eye, and it's and it's compares it against a database of diseased eyes. And if it senses your eyes are becoming diseased, um, it notifies you. Um, not a contact lens. Uh, so it's like a 3D printed lens. So imagine a smartphone and you attach it to the smartphone. Ah, okay. So you sort of take a snap. Lens. You take a snap of it every day or, so, or every couple of days or something. No, just uh, just once off. So, like, originally, if you needed diagnosis okay. for this disease, you would go through two hours of um, of different 
um, medical procedures and now it's it's much quicker like you just use this particular um, 3d printed ca camera lens essentially uh, that she's made take a picture of someone's eye um, and it will go through the database of images and tell you gotcha. whether it matches and of course you know, it's it's easy to forget in developed countries like Australia and Canada where there's fantastic health care, uh, but there's, you know, most of the world doesn't have access to diagnostic tools for simple things. So a diagnostic tool that can get out into the field and can help very uh, quickly, cheaply and easily can literally save lives, save sight, do incredible things like that, right? Definitely, definitely. So they, uh, she mentions in the article, her grandfather actually um, had this eye disease. It's like really, really common in diabetics, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, just in, in India in general, like they just don't have enough eye doctors to do the diagnosis. So they worked on this um, prototype, and now she's actually got it in a few hospitals in India, and they're using it. Fantastic, isn't that? I, you know, this is what technology is about. You know, you can imagine if if you're the person whose eyesight gets saved because of a technology like this. I mean, your entire your entire reality, your entire world is just you know a thousand times different. You know, and this is really what technology is about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, this particular tool, I guess, is good at diagnosing. Doesn't necessarily fix the problem. But it's a, a cheap, more efficient, and a quicker way of diagnosing this particular disease. And it's got the same accuracy as like a human doctor. So they've done a few tests and comparisons and it works. Take that human doctor. <laughs> Kate and I give the human doctors a bit of grief sometimes. <laughs> no, you'd it's, still, it's you'd still need the human doctor at the end of the day. No, you still need the human. We, we, we don't, we just, it, it's more about, it says more about us and our grumpiness than, than you doctors. We, we, we like you. We know you work very hard. I've got some friends that are doctors that are, that are so committed and, and it's, it's such a calling for most of them. It's, it's not, it's not an easy path for them. So, um, Cora's got some interesting articles written by doctors, but anyway, I won't, I won't digress, but good on this, good on this girl. I mean, 16 years old. Um, wow. I mean, uh, world's, uh, world's changed where a 16 year old can be that educated and have that much access to, uh, to the platforms to be able to develop something like this that's life-changing. And I, I love the democratization of education. I love the democratization of development. Gone are the days where only a government or an institution or a research body or university could develop these tools. You know, now it's just um, this innovation can happen anywhere at any time, and it's it's fantastic. Definitely. And um, I guess the, the light's been shone on her a little bit because she had the opportunity to speak at the O'Reilly – AI conference in New York recently. So, oh, great. Yeah, right, so well, her product's called uh, I, I Agnosis. Fantastic. And yeah, you know, type 1 diabetes, which is the sort of genetic version, definitely can cause all sorts of problems. Um, type 2 is more of the, the older age lifestyle one, which I'm, I'm not exactly sure of the, the flow and effects. I assume, I don't know if this is for type 1 or type 2 or type, or they both affect the eyes. I'm not exactly sure. Mm, not too sure. If I had to guess, I'd say it was 1. Right, yeah. Okay, well, well, terrific. That's, that's a real feel-good story in the, in, in, in the day and times of uh, nuclear war threats. It's nice to have um, good news stories. What else, what else is happening in the news? I see um, the blockchain um, the favorite topic everyone loves to talk about and doesn't know all that much about. There's a, there's a story that um, 
is pretty interesting that in Japan they they're looking at putting university and high school results on the blockchain. So to actually take it out of keeping it stored within the walls of the institution and having a public or semi-public blockchain um, where the results will actually reside. Yeah, so uh, Sony, one of the, I guess, massive digital company. So yeah, they've finished developing this system um, of storing like everyone's diplomas, degrees, test results, like a whole mix of things. And they're looking at partnering with some, I guess, higher education institutions to see if they can implement this that way we sort of everyone will have a live resume so all of your qualifications can be stored on the blockchain and then if you apply for a job for example they can well the those third party people can actually look into you and see what your education is without having that sort of fear of fraud all of this um all of this makes so much sense you know to almost like an email address in a way or your Google Drive that's globally accessible if you want it to be. You can have some sort of control and you don't have to, you don't have to rely on, on these institutions to, to be the gatekeepers of, um, of, of these incredibly important documents. That, yeah, that's, I don't know about you, but I find it really hard. I'm really bad with documents, with physical documents. Mm. Um, and I find it really hard to, to, to look after them and keep track of them and because I need them so seldom. And sometimes I move and I travel and it's just, you know, and, and so I'm trying to get to scan the important ones in any case and have the digital copy, but then sometimes it's not enough and it's just, you know, it's, um, I'm sure I'm sure it's a common problem that the, the the documentation side of things and of course reading that article Kate it comes back to one of our uh, our topics that we talk a lot about is um, that makes a whole lot of sense for medical information too right definitely yeah I mean the the possibilities of storing information about people in a way that's guaranteed to not be fraudulent um, to be a hundred percent truthful there's a, there's a lot of value there and and they're talking as well like these educational institutions they have to store everyone's records from every single year and every single degree and if you lose your copy um, you're going to have to either contact them to print off another hard copy or it's going to be sent via email so and who's like how do you verify like I could potentially try and get your transcript for example and pretend I was you I'm sure and I'm sure that happens you know I was saying yesterday how much of a struggle it is sometimes to deal with banks and credit card companies and all of that and authentication and, 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 and despite all the hoops you jump through, they still have massive fraud issues. So, you know, and they still have massive money laundering issues. So the system mostly works, but it's definitely ripe for improvement. Um, so it's interesting to see, you know, and, and it's as Melanie Swan spoke about in episode number 101, um, you know, the, the governance side of society and the economic side of society hasn't, the economic policy side of society ha hasn't been disrupted as deeply as some of the other aspects of society by technology. And the blockchain may very well be um, the technology that, that does disrupt um, all of this. I mean, the fact that you've got to fill in the same information in life a million times is just absolutely nonsensical. You know, it's just, just uh and, and this could sort of help with all of this. So we could finally get access to your year two term one maths results. 
right? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I was thinking about this. Like to an extent, that's a little bit concerning. Like you know, like let's say you have a have a bad year, you know, but then you recover later. Depending on the employee, you know, like are they going to judge you for that? And, and should they have access to that information? Like probably not. Like your resume is about showcasing the bits that you want to show off. It's not really the about internet does everything. not forget, Kate. The internet never forgets. And it is a problem. I mean, there was one American politician. I don't know if it was Al Gore or um, one of the American politicians said that um, when people turn 21, there should be a reset of their information on the internet. You know, everything exactly. related to them, boom, wiped, boom. You know, and it makes a lot of sense because to hold people accountable to something they did when they're 16 doesn't always make sense. Uh, particularly if they're just acting like idiots, you know. If it's more serious crimes, well, yes, they're old enough to know better. But um, if they're just acting like an idiot, it's a bit harsh for that to sort of be a, a blight on their record forever and ever and ever. But it is a problem that the internet doesn't forget, and sometimes that's a good thing, but sometimes, sometimes that's a bad thing as well. And uh, yes, I think I think we have to control a lot of our information. I mean, we don't know. The problem is at the moment we don't know. I mean. I don't know if my year two school results are still sitting in some archive somewhere. I don't know where my medical sort of records are. I mean, a bit in South Africa, but here I don't know who's got access. I mean, I would, I, I couldn't even consolidate it if I wanted to try, you know. Hmm. So at least if you know where it is, at least you know your Google Drive is your Google Drive. And if it gets hacked, well, okay, it gets hacked, but everything's in your Google Drive. At least that, you know, and I guess that's the risk of, and I know the blockchain is decentralized in a sense, but in another way, it's, it would be centralized if everything's on that blockchain. So, you know, Google Drive would be essentially um, centralized. So there's no easy answers, but I think we can do a whole lot better than we are doing now, particularly with the technology. So it's only a matter of time. And I think these solutions will come from a sort of open source type technology and um, they will come from some uni student somewhere or someone like you know the ethereum guys as a 22 year old developer it's going to come very much from left field i don't think the corporates are going to be the ones that um you, you know all this this groundbreaking technology just like the internet didn't come from from the corporate world and um you know all the open source technologies and and, and all of that side of things but anyway that's interesting blockchain and results and uni and school results living on the blockchain. We're going to take a short break and then um, we're going to have Kate's interview, Kate's first feature interview. So have a listen and send her kudos because it is a great interview. Kate chats with Rachel Baskerville, who's a people operations associate at Customer IO, and they talk about Rachel's article um, about remote work. Stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Check Dog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to CheckDog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. CheckDog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. <coughs> You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. My name is Kate Propel and I'm the design lead at Manage Flitter. This week I'm filling in for Kevin and thought I'd touch on the topic uh, that is very relevant to Manage Flitter and myself at the moment, uh, which is the concept of remote work. 
As some of you may have heard in the last episode, Managed Flutter is transitioning into a remote-based team uh, for a variety of reasons. I myself also relocated from Sydney to Whistler, a uh, relatively small town on the west coast of Canada just a few weeks ago, and I'm now trying my hand at remote work. Uh, This is obviously quite exciting, but also comes with its own set of challenges, which is why I found Rachel Baskerville's book review of DHH's and Jason Fried rework, Office Not Required. Um, Her article on Medium was particularly interesting. Rachel is the People Operations Associate at Customer.io and has kindly joined me for a chat today. Rachel, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. So what made you pick up the book remote in the first place? So my my husband picked it up years ago and read it. And um, this was before I started at Customer.io, before I had ever had a, a job at a remote company or a tech company um, for that matter. And didn't really think of anything of it. Once I started here, I think about a year in, we call in our CEO was thinking about books that we could purchase for all of our employees. It would be a great resource for everyone to have. Um, this came in at the top of the list. So I think it was last year that we just got a book shipped out to everyone or purchased eBooks. People prefer to read that way. So Awesome. And it's been uh, impacted you enough to want to write about it, which is interesting. Uh, so what's the remote culture like at Customer.io? Every time I think about this, I think about my first couple days at the company. Yeah. Um, to give you a little more context, um, Colin, our, our CEO, he moved the company from New York to Portland, Oregon in 2015. I can't remember now. Okay. 2014, I think. And um, he that's where he found me. He was looking for an office manager. I start... And I go in and I'm, we don't have an office. We're, we're renting a few desks at a, a co-working space. Uh, and, yeah, and we're a total of eight people at that point. And everyone I meet is not there. So all of my coworkers I'm talking to on Google Hangouts. And so that's kind of been the, even as we've grown over the years, we have a total of 25 people now. Only about five or six of us are ever in Portland at one given time. So even though we have an office, everything we do is structured around being a remote company, making sure everything's recorded, written down. We have a record of everything. And so people can work really well, no matter where they are, hopefully. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. So what sort of tools do you use to, to keep connected with everyone? So Slack's been a huge one. Uh, we use that as well. Um, yeah. Very key in our day-to-day life at work now. Right. And the more I hear, uh, Slack is so popular now that even companies that are all in one office, they're using it too. Yeah. Because, you know, people find that, you know, it's, it's easier not to have to go and tap someone on the shoulder. You can just send them a message or at message them in a, in a channel. So that's been a big one. And then Basecamp is huge, which is another reason why um, we love DHH here at, at Customerio, but um, <laughs> love Basecamp. Uh, they're, they're, 37 Signals is a great company, but um, Basecamp has changed so much of the way we communicate with each other. It's instead of relying on like the search function in Slack, we can organize our thoughts better. Um, there's a time and a place for everything almost. And if there isn't, we... We make it so. And then we use Zoom, which is a video conference tool. So 
We have a business account. Anybody can use that as much as they want, unlimited. Um, we also use it for webinars, which is great. And, of course, there's an occasional email from here to, um, from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> is that for, so you do use Gmail for calendar invites and to schedule meetings with people remotely as well? Exactly. Google Apps is huge. So, yeah, that's a good point. It's not just email, calendar, we've got Google Docs. Yeah. You, using their whole their whole stack so. yeah well, that sounds very similar to how we work it here and manage flitter as well but you made an interesting point about slack being uh i guess more of a subtle communication tool instead of having to tap that person on the shoulder and interrupt their workflow interrupt your own workflow i think as well in the book uh they mentioned that uh office life's like a food processor and you wrote about that in your article as well so it sort of chops you up and um it's not particularly structured you know you've um you can actually lose a lot of time in these small little chats and interruptions and losing the flow of things. And does that happen a lot as well at Customario? I think there's a danger for that to happen if we imagine that there were no more traditional offices and we all worked in Slack all the time. Slack is going to replace the traditional office in that by pinging someone or sending a direct message, I should say, you're you're tapping them on the shoulder essentially. So... For us, if you're online in Slack, it's kind of like you've got your butt in a seat at yep. the office yep. almost. And while like that shouldn't be the end all be all of your day, it should be like we uh, Colin's good about this. And, so, and certainly other managers are, too, to say, hey, if you need to do heads down focus work, just sign out of Slack. Like oh, we okay. trust you. We know you're working. But um, sometimes it's easier just to like shut it down and and not see the channels light up and be distracted by it. So Yeah, exactly. It's like um, recently introduced there like a status feature. So if you've noticed, you can put like a little emoticon and a message next to your name. Uh, we've started using that a little bit in the office as well. So that could be another way to do it too. You just say like, don't interrupt me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's awesome. And so your role in particular, so people operations, how often are you in contact with people remotely? And I guess what's the agenda when you are talking to them? Sure. Um, I talk to, to people remotely all the time. I, I feel like a lot of my my job is talking and talking and talking. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when we're um, when we're hiring. We've got four open positions right now. So that means I'm going to be talking a lot. That uh-huh. means I'm talking to the hiring team either in Slack, Basecamp, or live on a video call. And I'm certainly talking to future employees and interviews. So so if it's not hiring, it could be, um, you know, I've noticed something that we can maybe improve a, a part of a process. So, so I'll get in touch that way. Or if um, an employee has a question about something strange they've noticed about either our culture or if there's a policy question, um, there, there's so many different areas of where of when and where I can I can talk to people. So, and uh, of these employees, which ones are I guess best suited to remote work? Is there like a particular industry, particular role? I think. I mean, it sounds like we've been seeing more and more remote happen because of tech companies. Um, there's more and more tech companies now, and that means you've got a huge staff of developers. Yeah. <laughs> that, like inevitably, and. Um, the nature of their work lends itself very well to remote or distributed teams. But I don't think it's limited to that. I'm able to do everything I need to do 
even though I'm sometimes at home, sometimes I'm traveling, working, sometimes I'm here in the office. I think we have to kind of step farther back and say, what type of person would it take maybe to do or to have a remote job? And that's someone who can be pretty disciplined about how they want their day to work and to look like. I talk a lot about it in the article, but certainly it's in the remote book a lot. You know, if you're not disciplined, you could end up like either not working at all and being distracted or working way too much and burning out. Yeah. Seems to be the two biggest dangers as well. And that is that part of your role to sort of check in on that and make sure that's not happening? Yes, absolutely. And the part that I can help with the most, I would say, is making sure we have the fundamentals down. That's you've you've got your job description. We make sure we write that and we're good and we're good about updating it. Yeah. We're not perfect, but that's, <laughs> that's a huge one. And then certainly like goal setting and then career development. So if we can handle like kind of those three big areas, then we'll be able to tell really quickly if someone's too distracted where they are, if they're working from home and they're distracted or if they're, if they're burning out. So definitely because it's the sort of the, um, I'm finding the nice thing about remote work is that it is quite flexible. You know, I can, well, some days I get up super early and I'll do a bunch of hours in the morning and then it'll be really nice in the middle of the day and I can go for a quick hike and then come back and work through the afternoon and the night. So, and that's when it overlaps better with Sydney as well. So that flexibility is like really, really great. But interestingly, I found in that book as well that uh, he mentions that it's not so much about the hours necessarily that you're clocking. It's more about the value of the work you're providing and how concentrated and I guess just focus and, and your productivity levels. Is that, yeah, you agree with that as well? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think like the the place where I can immediately make an exception is for our technical support team yeah, or any like super customer or client facing role where you're, you, you know, kind of tied to their, Definitely. Um, their needs. But um, otherwise, yeah, 100% agree. I mean, there's, there's so many studies out there that are, um, and, and countries now that are minimizing the required workday from eight hours to six hours or whatever it is. So oh. yeah, <laughs> it's, an inter- it's an interesting idea. I don't know. Yeah, it certainly wouldn't work for everyone's role. Um, no. <laughs> but a lot of them potentially, particularly developers, I feel like they really get into like concentrated periods. And then once they're out of it, they're out. Yeah. <laughs> as you know you're not coming back for another couple of hours <laughs> and um yeah it's interesting too because even with multiple I guess support teams you can cover lots of different time zones so depending on how big the company is you could cover the globe basically have you have you guys got too many um customer support representatives uh we have four today four? Yep. yeah four and we're hiring another one soon so we've got a couple people on the West Coast, we've got someone in central time zone, mm-hmm. uh, central U.S., and then one, one person, no, sorry, two in central U.S. So the person we want to hire would, would ideally either be in Western Europe or um, Eastern time zone. And okay. that's just because the majority of our customers are in that time zone. So that kind of coverage would be excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and do you find as well with all the with the different time zones that you need to sort of have a, a manager or a, I guess a, a project lead, uh, for want of a better word, in each time zone to manage that? 
Oh, that's an that's an interesting idea of a like a project lead per time zone. Honestly, like each team works a little bit differently and they can dictate what works best for them. And anytime someone either changes teams, leaves the company, or we add a new person, that'll probably we'll tweak that. But no, I think the things that we we really rely on are I'll I'll check in with people to see what their typical their typical work day looks like, yep. their work schedule. And then I have a Google calendar that I've created called team schedule. And you can quickly like toggle on and off when someone's typical work schedule is. So, you know, you're not scheduling something super early or super late for them. There's also like a widget in Google calendar. That's very helpful for that. And then Slack is good about that too. I think you can, if you click on someone's profile, you can see the time zone they're in. So. Oh, perfect. Is there a minimum type of uh, crossover that you look for in time zones? Yeah. So one way we've we've uh, said this without saying it is um, it used to be every week we had a company meeting, the whole company. When we were a smaller number, that made sense to do it every week. Um, we've changed it to every other week now, but that happens at 9 a.m. Pacific. So that works for us because we don't have anyone yet in Asia or Australia. So um, right now that'll work for us, but absolutely we'll have to tweak it when we, when we have employees there. But, but yeah, so for now, like we're, we would likely see people online to, to be present for that meeting if they can be, unless they're on vacation. And then um, otherwise it's safe to assume that I can schedule a meeting if I need to with a, a group of more than two or three people around 9 a.m. So oh, interesting. Cool. And do you have any, um, I guess, other initiatives in your office to keep the team connected on a more social level, I guess, that's my question. Yeah, yeah, that's also a really big challenge being distributed from, I think, the very, our bigger events that we do are retreats. So ideally, everybody can go. Sometimes they can't, just depends on the circumstance. But um, uh, we do that twice a year. So spring and fall, we get together. And that's a week long. Yeah, that's that's really great. And we are like, the idea has become that we just get FaceTime. Um, we'll be productive, of course, but, you know, that forging that connection with each other is so important that we it carries us through the next six months until we have another retreat. Now, between the retreats, we do um, a couple other things. Uh, randomly, I'll schedule like water cooler chats, I call them. We don't have a water cooler, so <laughs> um, say, hey, I'm, I'm around for 20 minutes between tasks. If anyone wants to jump in, I'll, I'll shoot a link to the video chat I'm in, and then anybody who's available can jump in and chat if they'd like. Um, and then we have a more structured way of connecting people called um, serendipity chats, <laughs> and um, it's, it's actually a really cool Slack bot called Donut. And um, it's free to use. You can integrate it with Slack. But essentially, you assign it to a channel. Yep. And then you, anybody who joins the channel will get randomly paired up every other week or however often you want to do it. And um, you schedule a time to chat. And we ask that people try to talk about anything except for work during oh, that wow. time. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so that's that's really easy, um, and it's only every other week, so it's not like it doesn't ever get to be too much where you're feeling like, you know, yeah. Really <laughs> okay, and and how are they? I imagine they could be a little bit tricky to start with. People just trying to meet each other over um, 
over a webcam, but does it does it break down over time? It does. And I didn't mention either that um, one thing that we have all new employees do is a welcome email campaign okay. using our product. Yeah. So um, that obviously gets them jumped into product knowledge, gets that they're, you know, the gears moving for that, but also we get to learn about them through a series of email campaigns that they send to the team. So about themselves. Yes. So that's oh, really nice. Interesting. You get, you get like context before you jump into like a random water cooler or serendipity chat. So. Okay. Okay. So, so the new candidate will send out like maybe three, four emails in a campaign solely mm-hmm. about themselves. That's an interesting idea. Is it um, like based on questions or is it like totally up to them what they want to include? Yeah, it's it's up to them. We give like, um, I have a Trello board that has, it, it's kind of acting like an org chart somewhat. And I, the only way I can figure out how to do it now is to save PDFs of those emails from people. I attach them to their cards. And then if they'd like some inspiration to see what other people have done, they can go look there. So. Oh, great. Do you, do you keep them sort of as a reference point for, for example, if you're a new hire and you want to learn about um, the rest of the team, you can see their campaigns? Yes, that. And sometimes before people start, like some people have a have a quite a long buffer between they've, they've signed their offer letter and then starting, depending on the country, like employment laws are always different. But um, if there is if they've got some space between those two times, um, I'll sometimes I'll ask their future coworkers or, or teammates to reactivate their their own welcome campaigns to send oh, okay. to the new the new hires email so they they start getting excited about and they have a, some sense of understanding of who they're going to work with. Oh, that's great! Uh, and that I guess in addition to just having a up to date profile in in the likes of Slack helps as well (laughs) yeah definitely (laughs) so good and then the last point I wanted to touch on as well was um this idea of uh communication and written communication so um often I guess especially for remote working as well when you write things that like emotion or the tone doesn't always get communicated um how how do you think remote people get around this um Something that I've had to learn myself is to anytime I think something's a bit weird or seems a little, I don't want to say rude, but <laughs> maybe yeah. like a, a tone that seems a little harsher than, than I would, ant- would have anticipated, um, I try to remind myself to say like, well, let's, cl- I'm just going to clarify like, yeah, hey, what, what, what did you mean by that? Or like, or if I'm not comfortable asking that, I'll just say, hey, can we jump on a quick video call? Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of doing it too. I, I found that, you know, that that helps you understand someone's communication style. But that said, like, I think we can't do enough to remind ourselves to, to write with empathy. Um, we do a great job with that with customers and with, with each other for the most part. Yeah. But um it's inevitable that something's miscommunicated or misunderstood because we're missing, like you said, the tone, the emotion, body language and all that. Definitely. I've had instances before where um, someone sends something and you you think, Oh, that's not very nice or something. But then like you talk to them five minutes later and there's nothing wrong. It's just the way that you've read it sometimes. So 
it's an interesting an interesting battle to get around and I think on a sort of a more cheesy level sometimes the emoticons can make such a big difference as well absolutely yeah, yeah. I, I'm probably like an abuser of emoji yeah. but <laughs> but they're really yeah, especially um, in Slack too, our team's really big on customizing and creating our own ones. So people <laughs> import all their own um, little, I guess some of them are GIFs, some of them are um, emojis. It's a mix of things, but yeah, yeah they really Those break the ice, which is a good way to do it. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time, Rachel. I really appreciate it. Um, so Rachel's in charge of people operations at Customer.io and I will be linking to her article in the show notes. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Kate. Hi, my name is Joe Pinto. I'm the Business Operations Manager here at Manage Flitter. Did you know that Twitter can be a powerful social selling platform? But the first step to effective social selling on Twitter is to grow your Twitter account with high quality niche followers. For example, let's say you are an online bicycle retailer. Manage Flitter could help you grow your Twitter account by helping you find and follow people who have the word cyclist in their bio. The more targeted your search is, the higher likelihood these Twitter accounts will follow you back. We have millions of users, literally, that have used Manage Flitter's search, sort and filtering tools to grow their account with the right followers. This has provided them with a solid base to kickstart their social selling. Feel free to drop by manageflitter.com to trial our product or email us at contact at manageflitter.com to schedule an obligation-free walkthrough. Kate, a lot of uh, Rachel's articles great. I recommend everyone read it who is into remote work and remote-first cultures. And, um, I mean, it's a topic we've spoken about, a lot about. As you mentioned, we are moving to a remote-first culture and I actually encourage if you're a small business um, I actually encourage you to consider it if, particularly if you're struggling to find the right team members what dawned on me Kate as well in talking to my brother who works for a company that's not remote at all they have a few different offices but they're not remote at all and I said to him you know why don't you push the CEO to consider remote or, or to start he said he said look mate he said he said, never mind remote, half of the time I'm actually sitting next to him and we're pointing at the same screen with our fingers together and going through things. He said, we're so far remote, like the whole, and I think you and I probably, for, you know, we, we forget um, how far some companies, it, it's the most foreign concept. Another friend just started a, a new corporate job and, um, you know, I said to him, can you work at a cafe in the afternoon or something? He's, he said, no, nah, he's got to be in the office, bum on seat, um, you know, pretty senior role at a big corporate company. So, you know, being a small company in tech, we sort of take all of this for granted that we can trial and focus only about productivity and things like that. But I think most of the world has got a lot of catching up to do still. Definitely. And I think the bigger the organization, the harder it get somewhere unless you can divide that that big company into smaller teams but at the same time like you can sort of understand depending on high high up the food chain they are you know it's, it's an appearance thing as well you know if, if they're the boss then it's important that they're there and that they're seen there look you know it's it's something i obviously think a lot about being the ceo and obviously part of my job is to ensure things are optimal and the culture is optimal and the um, workplace is optimal one of the things I'm aware of as well is that 
you know, appearance versus reality, you know, and there is, there is as a CEO comfort in the fact that you walk into an office and there are bums on seats and it looks like people are working, yeah. right? But that's all it does. It, I mean, if you're honest with yourself, it just looks like people are working. And there is the benefit that you can call out and you can say, hey, you know, what's going on with this or this? Or can you help me with that? And that's definitely something with multiple time zones and remote workers is a bit more painful. Like sometimes you in Canada now, different time zones. Sometimes I'm working at 6, 7 p.m. at night and I'm like, oh, I'd love it if I could ask Kate something, you know, and I've got to wait for the next morning. But there's huge other advantages to the fact that, you know, we can still work together, even though the fact you wanted to travel, etc. So just because there's bums on seats, though, also doesn't mean someone's not being productive. You know, they could just be bludging around. They could. So it's it's really, you know, the, the, the only thing that really does matter is productivity and us moving forward, which um, remote first really forces the whole team not just the ceo and the and, and the execs but the whole team is really it's all you know it's very weighted towards the fact that the only thing that 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 it's really about is the delivery whereas in the office it's probably a lot easier you know it's a lot easier to sort of fill the gaps with just stuff and meetings and chats and 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 looking like you busy as opposed to being productive the busy versus productive side of things whereas with remote it's it's a lot harder to stay busy and not productive definitely and i've noticed that a lot actually um you on one hand you're missing like the day-to-day -day chatter but on the other hand because you're missing that you're getting a lot more done yeah, and I think I think the point you guys made as well is that, you know, there there is the risk of of going the two extremes, either getting nothing done when you're working remote, or just actually only working. And and whereas in the office it's modulated a bit, people go for coffees, um, you go for a walk, you go get the mail, you go to the and it's 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 inherently has got sort of a little bit more diversity in the day. I think what, what I also find interesting is people that look for remote jobs tend to be a self-selected group of people as well um, that obviously enjoy that and, and know that they work better um, remote. And particularly, you guys made this point as well, tech people. Tech people a lot of the time, and I'm generalizing like mad, but tech people a lot of the time, what they really want to do is just get on with stuff. You know, a lot of the time they don't and they they don't want to go for team building and they don't want to sort of sit at a picnic and sort of you know talk about how they're feeling about you know, you know where the culture wants to go and this like like they'll do it a lot of them and they can you know if they have to but it's it's not their first love their first love is sitting down and solving technical problems and that's why they love remote work uh, a lot of them at least Definitely, and it's just also just about getting things done and ticking things off and um, not being distracted. And I think, yeah, it, it does take a lot of discipline, but it's also it's also kind of worth it in terms of I quite like how I can split my days up if I want to do something in the middle of the day. I can either get up early or do a few hours in the morning, have a break, and then go back and either work into the night or all afternoon, like whatever I need to do. Um, and it's so good. It's so good. Like you can't really do that if you have to be at an office at a certain time. Like you tend to have your lunch break, um, yeah. which 
on in some cases like for me now some days I won't go with a lunch break like I'll just be eating while I'm working but at the same time I'll I'll go for a walk in the middle of the day if I have to or something and it's just uh the flexibility is actually really good and it, I like that it's refreshing as well it's good to sort of if you're stuck at something just get out go for a walk go for a swim come back and you're not limited to you know office hours or anything like that I mean the flexibility is really interesting and if you know I remember we chatted with a potential candidate a few months ago that nearly joined us and um one of the things that he said, he one of the simple reasons why he wanted remote work was he liked to go to the gym during the day, right? So whatever, at you know, three, four o'clock because it was less busy and it worked well with his sort of biorhythms. And in his in-office job, um, he couldn't, right? You know, and sometimes these little, these little lifestyle touches can make a big difference to the quality of life. And I think if you're a small business owner or a tech startup owner, you can really attract candidates based on just giving them these small things that are actually not a, a terribly big impact on the company, particularly if it's remote, but um, are actually a big impact to the candidate, you know, whether it's staying at home with the kids or, or working remote or, um, you know, flexi time or one day off to, you know, do some other hobby business or something like that. So... And all of this is a lot easier if it's remote because once you're in the office, you sort of either have to just be totally anything goes or you have to be right. This is the way we do things. Because otherwise, if you give one rule for one, one person and another person, then, then, it's, then it becomes actually a little bit awkward and weird and, and people are – you know, there's, there's perception issues and it becomes a lot more, more tricky to manage. But if everyone's remote or if the remote people can do what they want, then it's a lot easier. Yeah. And like as I found too, I think you just have to be disciplined and organized. So like for me, I know every day that we have stand up at 4.30, my time. So I'm always like, okay, if, if I'm going to do something in the middle of the day, I'm going to be back at work by 4.30. Yeah, it's um, it, it definitely does require discipline. I love traveling and working as well. I mean, I think you've started to enjoy that now. It's a, it's a good balance. You get, you, you get to enjoy a place from a, a little bit more of a, a, a local perspective. And um, it'll be interesting to see if remote work really, really does hit the mainstream or not. It's still, it's still a bit, it's still a bit fringe, you know, and I think there's still a, a magic that does happen face to face. So I think it's, it's never going to totally disappear, but um, yeah, it's, it's, We'll, we'll see it. It's, it's a pity there's not stats about how many, you know, what the increase in remote work has been. I don't know if you guys stumbled onto any of those stats while you were researching that chat. Um, not really stats-wise. We were more just talking about um, methods and approaches. Um, some, some that I found particularly interesting from Rachel were her, um, she called them serendipity chats or um, when they have a, a new hire, they have welcome email campaigns. So that new person has to use their product to create a campaign about themselves and they can read current employees' uh, email campaigns as well to get to know each other. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we talked on a few of those things, but not necessarily stats. Yeah, it's, um, oh, you know, there's some well-known companies that are full remote, including Automatic, which the, uh, where WordPress comes out of, the Zapier. Uh, Basecamp's about 50% remote, I think. Yeah, I'm correct. I quite like that model as well. If you've got, you know, if you've got a 
a sort of hub, so to speak. Um, obviously, there is the risk that then you still have the feeling of insiders versus outsiders, people at HQ and people not at HQ, which you're probably getting a bit of a sense of now where something happens in the office and you miss out type thing and, you know. Yes and no. Like I, to an extent, I expected it more than I'm actually feeling now. It's surprising how much slack fills the, fills the void. Yeah, slack, slack is uh, definitely definitely a lot of the glue that sort of um, sticks it all together. Um, we tried a product many years ago. I think you remember it, or maybe it was before your time. What was it called? Where it just sort of streams your video from your computer the whole time into a dashboard. Oh, yeah, no, I remember that. Do you remember that? <laughs> that was weird. I found that a bit uh, weird. Yeah, it sort, of, it sort of almost got there. So you can sort of... You can sort of um, create a virtual, you know, image of uh, everyone, what they what they up to. But I guess all that happened most of the time was just you just had these faces just staring at a screen. Right. Yeah. Uh, I think what would actually be a better idea almost would be if we had a, a webcam, not from the computer, but if everyone working remotely. And at the office, maybe we had a couple of cameras and there was a screen where you could go to and you could actually see everyone's workspace where they are, right? And I actually, I actually think that would be pretty nice. Instead of just their face, you could actually see a bit of their context the whole time. Um, and people could toggle it on or toggle it off and maybe, you know, you click on it, it goes through to their Slack and um, – I don't know. I don't know how, how, you know, the problem is it wouldn't really change very often. So you'd go to it and it sort of looks the same every time. So I'm not quite sure what the point point is. Yeah, you, it would almost, you'd just be looking at people's faces basically um, or people sitting at their desks. And then at the same time, to an extent, you could feel like somebody was sort of looking over your shoulder all the time if you had like yeah. recording what you were doing every second of the day. Yeah, no, exactly. But it's um, anyway. We'll we'll uh, if you are a remote team and you have any tips, we actually uh, on our on our website itsamonkey.com, you can actually leave comments about our show, and I'd love any other tips or any other tools. I think there's we can always do a lot better with remote, just as you can always do with uh, better with on site. So we would love any tips that you have. I think we do pretty well i think we've been doing it for quite a while i mean even we, we've had a remote i mean we, we had Charlotte in south africa for many many years so we've always had some some element of remote so we're sort of used to time zones and um, trusting people and things like that so um yeah anyway that's episode 102 done next week we'll be back with 103 remember to email us podcast at itsamonkey.com any ideas for guests uh, anything else, if you want to get hold of Kate or myself, if you want to chat to us on your podcast, I'm actually going to be on another podcast in a few weeks. I've been on another few podcasts. If you have a podcast, I enjoy chatting on podcasts as well. So feel free to reach out to me. And uh, yeah, thanks for listening. See you later.